let's say that one day you're walking around school. And as you walk around school, you trip. Maybe a friend does it intentionally, maybe he doesn't. And you hit your head really hard. When you hit your head really hard, you hit it so bad that you have to go to the hospital. Once you're at the hospital, you wake up, kind of drowsy, unaware of what had happened. But as you're sitting there in the hospital and the doctors are mumbling some things, you have a lot of drugs, you know, flowing through your veins or whatever, you remember something. You remember that you are one of the most notorious criminals that has ever lived in America. But it just so happened that you've had amnesia up until this point, up until the point that you hit your head. And now you're being flooded with memories of the people that you've killed, the people that you've stolen from, the things that you have in your possession that aren't yours. All these memories of your sins flood into your mind. But for the past year or so, you've been living a good life, unaware that you were one of these notorious criminals. Now, if you're in that position, you can do one of two things. You can either turn yourself in to the authorities and confess, or, number two, you can try to live the rest of your life pretending like it didn't happen, and at the same time, trying to atone for your own sins. Which would you choose? If you were one of those people, and you just recognized by sheer accident that you have all of these wrongs that you've done towards many different people, would you try living the rest of your life trying to make up for it, trying to do good things to other people? Because here's the thing, and maybe you've seen this on the news, because murders happen all the time now. The families that are of the victim, the families of the victims, will always say, even if this person's brought to justice, this person goes to jail, it's never, there's no such thing as closure. We don't feel better. It just feels like we can put an end to the book, into the chapter. But you don't feel better about things. You've lost someone that you cared about dearly. So if you turn yourself in, you reason, well, that doesn't really make it better anyway, and I could probably do more good if I live the rest of my life trying really, really, really hard to make people happy. But then the lingering thought, what if the people that I've hurt find out? What if they come after me? What if I get caught? And so as you try to live your life this way, you're just haunted by your past, wondering what if people find out, what if people know? Now, the reason why I bring up that illustration is because I think if we're really, really honest, each and every one of you here, if you are really honest, if I'm really honest, there are things that we've done wrong. We've committed offenses against the God of the universe. And if we were alone with our thoughts, we weren't distracted on our phones, relationships, weren't distracted by social media, music playing all the time, if we were just alone with our thoughts and really thought about what kind of things you've done wrong, most of you wouldn't be able to stand it. Because it's not just the things that you've done wrong against God, like, oh, I I use God's name in vain. But you know, like, if I asked you, how should one person live their life? What is the standard? Like, what should an average person aim to do with their life? 
most of you would have to admit that you don't even meet your own standards. Be a basically good person. Try to be nice to everybody else. You know that you've gossiped, you've lied, you've done things you, you know you shouldn't have done, you've taken advantage of other people. And so if you think about it, what is keeping us from confronting those sins? Oftentimes, we try to distract ourselves. We don't want to think about it, and so we evolve ourselves around other people. We do good things, try to atone for those things. But maybe you're even thinking like, well, what if I don't believe in God? If I don't believe in God, then I can't feel bad. I would actually say this. Every person who's alive has felt guilt before. There is not a human being on, this, on the face of the earth who has not felt guilt even if you've seared your conscience, you've become numb to it, you all know what that's like. I don't have to tell you what guilt feels like. If God doesn't exist, guess what? That means there is no possibility of being forgiven. That means that for the rest of your life, you will be haunted by your guilt, trying to become a better person and always coming up short. That means that even if, and you've done this before, right? You've hurt, you've hurt a friend that you're really close with. And you say that you're sorry and you feel like it's not enough. And you want to make it up to them. But then they're still, you know, cold to you. They don't trust you anymore. And you wish that you could just undo what you did. Don't you realize that's exactly what we're doing towards God each and every time that we've sinned. God created us for a good purpose. To enter into this world and to bless others, not curse them, to build up humanity, to create culture. All culture is, is it's the rearranging of raw materials. So music is the rearranging of sound. And you're rearranging it in, in such a way that it blesses you, blesses other people, hopefully, and not scares other people. When you have architecture, you're re rearranging the building the raw materials of earth to create something beautiful for other people and people can inhabit it. And God intended us to build. Work was not a result of the fall. Work came before the fall. And once we sinned, we've missed the mark, we've made mistakes, that is when everything got messed up. And so you owe God something. You owe God the life that he gave you because you borrowed it from him in the first place. Did you create yourself? No. Did I? No. Did you ask to be born? No. But you're thrown into existence. And you have responsibilities. In a similar way, just like you owe your parents respect, by virtue that they're, they're, they're your parents. And if, that, if you owe a little bit of respect to your parents, how much more the God of the universe who has given you everything that you have? And so I would say to the person who says, well, I don't believe in God, I would say, well, then you actually have no hope because there's no possibility and no guarantee that you can actually be forgiven. You will have to hide this guilt for the rest of your life. But if God exists, we have one of two scenarios. Number one, God is going to judge all of us for taking advantage of his things. Like we hold criminals, human beings accountable for the bad things that they do. We throw them in jail some people believe that you should actually carry out the death penalty on some people. We, we have different penalties when people do bad things. We understand that. 
How much more than the God of the universe when he's given us everything and we've misused everything he's given us? We've made mistakes. We try to be good people, but we fall short of the standard that we've even made ourselves. And so God could judge us completely. And if that was the world that exists in reality, we would have no choice. It would be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We might as well live it up now because judgment is coming tomorrow. Or the second scenario, which we know is true. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. I had such power in that too. Verse 18. I started off the same way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So, check this out. This is what really makes it good news. The fact that God is completely righteous in judging you and judging me. He would be completely justified in sending each and every one of us to hell for eternity. Why? Because when we've sinned against an infinitely honorable and infinitely holy God, we deserve infinite punishment. Why is hell eternal? Why doesn't he just cast us into hell? We're there for three years, and then after our sins are, you know, atoned for, we perish or something. Well, the problem is, apart from Jesus, there is no possible way to atone for your sins. It'll never be good enough. It will never match what Jesus was able to do. Live a perfect life in our place. God became man. The only possible solution. If I lived a perfect life and I never sinned, the only thing I could do is maybe save myself. I couldn't save you. But Jesus, by his power, was able to come into our world and die the death that you and I should have died, suffer the way that you and I should have suffered. Like, think about this. Martyrs Throughout history, people that have died for their faith, we believe that, that angels have been there to comfort them. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, he saw angels and he had joy as he's being stoned to death. But Jesus was bearing the wrath of God on the cross. There was no one to help him. There was nothing to numb the pain. He was in complete and utter despair apart from the fact that he would rise again. He was left alone to bear that judgment for you and for me. You guys know the illustrations. You probably heard in Bible class and, and whatnot. The nails weren't these tiny things. Giant sticks driven into his arms. Driven into his feet. The crown of thorns. And on top of that, being mocked. Being scourged. Do you ever wonder why it is that Jesus had to die on a cross? Why wasn't he just hanged? Why wasn't he stoned? Why is it that he had to die one of the most humiliating ways to die in all of history. We know that, you know, the paintings, Jesus on the, on the cross, and he has a loincloth and stuff. You were completely naked when you were crucified. It was one of the most detestable, humiliating things for the worst of criminals. The reason why people wanted him crucified is because there were religious leaders at the time that didn't just want him to die, they wanted him to be humiliated. They wanted the God of the universe to feel shame. 
Our sin, when we do bad things, we have arrogance about it, don't we? God has no right to judge my heart. God knows my heart. One day if I go to heaven, I'll put it off one day. And you know, like if I see God, I'm going to let him know about how good of a person I was. Better than Jesus? As good as Jesus? Really? Some of us feel like we can argue with God. Like if God was not loving, he could just exterminate you. The end. You cannot bargain with God. It's not like, well, you know, I really have been a great guy. It's like, no, you can't. It's kind of like when you get pulled over by a police officer, you go to court, and you try to stand up for yourself. You don't hire a lawyer, and you try to talk to the judge. Like, listen, this is how I know I was right. It doesn't matter how convinced you are. You're not going to convince the judge, and he's still going to sentence you for the crime that you've done. You have no power in this. This is no we the people. Yet, out of God's great love for us, he suffered for us and died once. His death was sufficient on the cross. The just for the unjust. Jesus Christ for Jesus Barabbas. You know that was his name, right? Barabbas, on the, uh, Barabbas when he was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people, and they said, which one do you want? Barabbas or Jesus Christ? They were both named Jesus. But you and I are like Barabbas, the murderer, the betrayer, the person that no one wants to be around. Because if we're honest, we know that we're bad people. And yet Jesus provides a way for salvation. And this is the good news, that we can be brought to God. There's no other way. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so knowing this, knowing that Jesus is the only possible way that we can come to God, we can go to heaven, why is it that all of us kind of forget? Why is it that every time Easter comes around, it almost becomes just like a holiday with rituals, things to do, places to go. You don't even go to Good Friday service anymore. You've been there, done that, you've seen it. It's the same thing every year. And yet, I think that if we really understand this story and really know what it means to be forgiven, that should actually drive us to the cross, not from the cross. Because it's a reminder that no matter how bad you are, God still loves you all the more. How sad is it that some people don't take this? That boggles my mind. It really does. And I have friends, and I, I think about this all the time, but you have people in your life that's like, you reason with them, you're telling them, and like, this is, this is it. This is how you get to heaven. And you're like, so just pray the prayer, that's it. And they're like, yeah, well, maybe one day I will. It's like, no, pray it now. What's so hard? You can at least fake it in front of me. But there's something within us. Like, I've, I think I've said this before in a message, but like, what is so hard about bowing down in front of somebody? What is so, like, dishonorable? If I was to bow down before you or something, it's, like, embarrassing. Why? Like, there's nothing really that embarrassing about getting on your two knees. But culturally, it means something. And we know deep down inside that even if you don't believe in Jesus, there's a lot of people that are refusing to be baptized. A lot of people that are refusing to ask Jesus to come into life, be the Lord and Savior, because they know there's a reality behind that. There's a spiritual reality. 
reality all around them. Deep down inside, we know these things. And I kind of think about the eunuch in uh, Acts chapter something, in the book of Acts, when Philip is witnessing to this eunuch, and he's just reading Isaiah. And he says, what's keeping me from being baptized? Here's a body of water. And in that verse, I never really like understood that verse. I never really thought much of that verse until I went to Israel last year, or two years ago. And I was at the Sea of Galilee, and people were being baptized. And it's like, what's so hard about jumping in the water? But it's that one small step that keeps people from eternity. Not the physical thing of being baptized, but the willing submission of a person to say, I want to, I want to lay down my life and let you be Lord. Let you be my Savior. Let you take over my life and direct me. And most of us, if we're honest, know that we've been living our own way. But he continues on in verse 20. Peter does. He says, well, verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that was eight souls, were saved through water. There is now an antitype which saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, if you didn't understand what I just read, that's okay, because this is one of the most confusing passages in the entire Bible. What in the world? Jesus went to the spirits in prison. What is prison? What is spirits? He preached to those that are dead, it says later on in chapter 4. It talks about the days of Noma, formerly disobedient, divine long-suffering. A lot of this is really confusing, and a lot of people are kind of just like skip over it. But here's why we need to know what this means. Because when you know the meaning behind it, it puts the whole thing in context. And so what he's saying here is, and this might blow your mind, a little bit of theology, and then we'll continue. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he descended into the place of the dead, Sheol. There, he proclaimed victory over the spirits that were formerly disobedient. In other words, Nephilim, spirits mixed with humans, talks about in Genesis, I think, chapter 6. So there are these spirits that saw the daughters of men and, and they laid with them. They had children. And they're half man, half angel. Crazy story. It sounds really unbelievable. And so it sounds so unbelievable that there are a lot of people that don't even believe it. And they try to spiritualize the whole thing. They're like, well, this is probably talking about like Jesus evangelizing to people that are dead now, but were alive before. And, and their interpretation doesn't really make any sense. So here's the thing. Jesus, going down to the place of the dead, proclaimed victory over those spirits who were sinful. The angels, the demons that were sinful and were being punished. Why did he do that? Why did he have to do that? He proclaimed victory to show that death couldn't hold him and death couldn't, death couldn't defeat him. That he really was victorious and he didn't belong there in the place of the dead. At the same time, all the people that had trusted in Jesus without knowing Jesus from the times all the way in the beginning, all the way to the point of Jesus, had looked forward in their faith, believing the Messiah would one day come. So when Jesus descended, he was able to reveal himself to those people in Abraham's bosom in the place of the dead so that they could go into heaven. Sounds crazy! I know! 
That's why a lot of people don't believe it. And if you don't believe that, you can still be a Christian. That's fine. But once again, this is how it's really important. The whole message today is talking about how Jesus suffered and conquered. And likewise, we too can suffer and conquer. That's it. Jesus suffered on the cross. He died once, the just for the unjust, that we might be brought to God. And then his victory was so complete, he descended to the depths, told those demons, hey, I won, and then set free those people that were trusting in Jesus up until he arrived on the scene. As a type of this, it talks about Noah and talks about baptism. Here's the really trippy picture about baptism. Because if you think about it, a lot of us don't even know what baptism is for. You know, it's like, it's an outward display of an inward decision. You understand that. But why do we have to be baptized? Why did Jesus say, you must be baptized? The answer is right here in this verse. It says, the answer of a good conscience towards God. That word answer means appeal. So read it this way. It says, uh, verse 21, there's an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So the appeal of a good conscience towards God, baptism is you saying, God, I want you to forgive me. And so in those days, that was kind of like our altar call. We still believe that you have to be baptized, but that was our display saying, I'm making this decision and I don't want to live this way. My conscience seared, the guilt and shame upon me, I want to be forgiven. The picture of baptism is really important because it shows us this. You guys know that Noah was in the ark, right? Noah was in the ark and the floods came and wiped out all the people who had lived except for eight people, Noah and his family. As they were in that ark, the ark itself was Christ. Now, whereas water before was water of judgment that exterminated people, the water that we enter in is a water that cleanses us. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about it. He's a commentator. He says this. Baptism thus shows us clearly that in one sense we have died and been raised again, but in another sense we emerge from the waters knowing that we are still alive and have passed through the waters of God's judgment unharmed. As Noah fled to the ark, we, so we flee to Christ, and in him we escape judgment. Jesus is the ark. And as you are baptized, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, like, you don't, like you're not doing it to take a bath. You're doing it so that you can come out symbolically and also spiritually clean. That's why we do it. So he says, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. More confusing verses, but I think it's really simple by just explaining it like this. All of us have to have the same mindset as Jesus. He was willing to suffer to gain victory. And you and I, if we're honest, we don't want to suffer. And that's often why we fall into sin, isn't it? Here's something that maybe you've never thought about before. It is impossible to suffer for God and sin at the same time. The Bible says that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't suffer for Jesus and sin at the same time. Stephen, when he was being martyred, isn't lusting. 
right? And so what he's saying isn't necessarily like, once you suffer for Christ, you're never going to sin ever again. What he's saying is you are making an active stand against sin by embracing a path of suffering. And so what he's saying is you're going to be made fun of. People will make fun of you saying, what are you doing? You're a Christian now? It's so anti the world. By you publicly getting baptized, telling people about Jesus, people will just be like, who are you? And embracing that, not running away from it, saying, yeah, I am a Christian, and I'm not ashamed of this. People will persecute you, make fun of you, maybe even leave you. But arm yourselves with the same mind, because that's exactly what Jesus did, and that's exactly how he was able to conquer. It's through suffering. And so, that's why we should no longer live in the rest of our time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Many of us might be thinking, many of you right here might be thinking, one day I will live my life for Jesus. One day, I know exactly what I have to do, but one day I will repent of my sins. Why? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know if you might go home and Jesus returns. You don't know if on the way home, one of us is going to be hurt. You don't know how much time we have left. So thinking about that, it's always confusing me when people say, one day, I'll change. He says in verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Gentiles not meaning non-Jews, but being non-Christians as the church is the true Israel. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He's basically saying, haven't you had enough of that? When you, you're out in those drinking parties, the next morning, when you're sober, you got a hangover, all your friends are gone. Aren't you sick of that? And most people, they just run to the distraction so they don't have to think about their guilt. But he's saying, you've had enough of it. Enough of your life has been wasted in the things of this world. Now it's time to immerse our mind in the word of God. The only way that you can arm yourselves with the same mind as Christ Jesus is if you spend time with Jesus. You're in the word daily, not once a week, not once a month, but you're letting his word sink into your heart. You're letting his word become one with you. And you're spending time with other believers, encouraging them, not just talking about dumb things. You want to know him more. You want to know his will more. Not living the rest of your time in the flesh for your own pleasures, but you're living it for the will of God. Verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, like we said. People are going to make fun of you. People are going to think it's strange that you no longer want to be one of their friends. Verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. Remember what we said before, spirits and also those who have been in Abraham's bosom, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Here he's talking about our motivation to conquer. Being motivated to conquer. I had um, a friend, you guys know I go rock climbing a lot. 
I had a friend and we went out. It was his first time going rock climbing. It's a giant boulder. And uh, I mean, it wasn't that big. It was maybe 25 feet, but there's a jagged rock at the end, kind of like towards where you would land your crash pad so you don't hurt yourself or whatever. He was climbing without any pads on the floor. No one was really spotting him and making sure he was okay. Didn't really know what he's doing. He fell from the top, landed on the bottom. His foot landed on a jagged rock, and he split his foot open. So his foot was on the side of his leg, and his ankle bone was just completely exposed. In that moment, I was really bummed out. I was like, come on, people. Really? We just got here. You just ruined my day. But I know it's really messed up. I was very selfish. I've gotten better. Um, here's the thing, though. I've noticed something. I don't climb that boulder. It's one of the easiest boulders around. I don't do it. And I can climb that probably with my eyes closed and be okay. I don't do it. Why? So I think about the pain that it caused my friend. The blood, the craziness, the hospitals. He, to this day, has to have one of those plates in his foot. The pain that it caused. <laughs> when I was little, silly illustration. Um, you wonder why I don't cook? When I was really little, I was like five years old. We were making cake. My mom had one of those blenders, and I was mixing up the batter and stuff. And I don't know what came over me. I was very weak. I was a very fragile kid. As I'm, like, pressing the button, it was so powerful that it just, like, went like this. And then it just went on my chest. And it was like, and then, like, it got caught in my skin. I was crying. I was like, ah! <laughs> I'm dead serious. I don't know what happened. And my mom's laughing. Like, how did you do that? And I'm telling you, there was a demon inside the blender, and it almost killed me. So, <laughs> to this day, I have not baked one thing since I was five years old. Why do I say that? I say that because... You think about all the situations that you yourself have experienced a lot of pain, and to this day, you still have a fear of it. The time that you're locked in the, you know, your car, or you got locked in the bathroom, that's happened to me before. You get locked in a room, locked in a bathroom, like, help, and then you just get, like, paranoid every time you use the bathroom now. It's true. But what I've noticed is, it's like, when it comes to sin, it does not matter how much it hurts. I immediately forget. Think about Samson in the Bible and Delilah. Right? He's with Delilah and she's like, huh, so what's your weakness, Samson? And he's just like, oh, if you take ropes and tie me up, I will not be able to do anything. So she does. The next day, he, she's like, Samson, what's really your weakness? He's like, um, well, you got to... Do new strings and try this other method. And she does it again. It's like, dude, like, by the end of the week, wouldn't you fear that she's going to find out where your actual weakness is? Spiritual amnesia. Before you know it, you're just playing with fire. And you're going to get burned again and again and again. And there are people that continually return to the exact same sin. There are things that I do, and I know it's bad for me. And I return to those things. I'm like, why do I keep doing it? I know that was a bad decision. 
I know I shouldn't have talked to that person. I know that was bad news. And you just give in for the moment, thinking there's time it'll be different. Maybe you broke up with somebody. You know they were a bad influence on you. And you just text them just because maybe they've changed. No, they have not changed. They are still bad. The Bible actually says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats its foolishness. Proverbs 26.11. Our motivation to conquer should be the pain of sin. Number one, the pain of sin. It's painful to be mocked by worldly people, but you know what's even more painful? Disappointing your heavenly father, the one that you love. It's painful to be mocked by people, but when you hurt someone you truly love, when you disappoint your parents and you have a great relationship with your parents, when you hurt your closest friend and you didn't intend to, you didn't mean to, but you just had this sense of like regret and guilt that you did something. I remember like I said something negative about one of my close friends to other people just because it was in this, this moment. It was like one of those things where um, you want to feel smarter than the other person. You're like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And you just say that. And when I said that, I was like, why did I say that? What's wrong with me? He's like, I love him. I didn't even believe what I said. Of course he knows what he's talking about. He's a smart person. You're just disgusted with yourself because you see yourself all the time. Like you want to push other people down and so that other people look at you sometimes. And I hate that about myself. And I hope you hate it too. That your sin hurts. Not just yourself, not just God, and other people too. Second motivation to conquer should be the fear of God. The fear of God. That's why he says, they will give an account in verse 5 to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We should be fearing what we are doing with our time. Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for our creator? Because we all have to give an account. The Bible says, for every idle word that you speak, men will have to give an account. How much more your actions, what you've been entrusted with, your giftings. Are you using it to bless other people or are you using it so that other people look at you? For a long time, I felt like music was my way to get what I wanted. Right? So that people could look at me and be like, wow, he's a talented musician. They're in a famous band. You travel the world. And then give Jesus some props, you know, on my CD or whatever. Give him a shout out. But then when I started turning it into a way to bless other people, then I was free from having to become anything with those things. I didn't have to become famous. I didn't have to become successful. I didn't, my music didn't have to be the best. As long as I can inspire other people and bless other people, that's what really matters. To use my giftings for the glory of God. Know that no matter how far away you run from God, no matter how much you sin, God will always treat you the same if you return to him. Did you know that? That's what the prodigal son is about. A son that lavishly spends everything that was his father's. Prodigal doesn't mean someone who runs away and comes back. Prodigal means someone who just spends extravagantly. And that's what the prodigal did. He took half of his father's possessions and got rid of all of it, wasted all of it. And as he's coming back, feeling the guilt, feeling the weight of what he had done. He went back and his father ran towards him and gave him a big hug and wept on him, saying, my son was dead, but now he's alive. My son was lost, and now he's found. 
That's how Jesus views each and every one of you, no matter how far away you feel from God. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we think like we're talking about sin just because we say sin, because we sing it in our songs, forgiven us of sins. But when we think about what sin actually means, we have no idea what to do with it. Your friend tells you something, or your friend sins against you, and you're like, oh, what do I do? I don't want to like embarrass them. Like you know your friend's smoking pot. And you're like, well, I'm just not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to confront him because if I confront him, then people will know. And if people know, then like, things might turn really bad. He might not be my friend anymore. That is not how you deal with sin. You expose sin even if your friend hates you. Not in a judgmental way, not just like, hey, let's like, post on Facebook. Look, my friend's smoking pot right now. Not like that. But you confront him on his sin. So you save his soul. So they are not wasting one more day, one more second living for themselves. They can be freed from that and turn from their sins, repent, and embrace what God is calling them to do. In conclusion, finishing off tonight, what will you choose to do? There are spirits that are disobedient. There are people that were set free. There are people that live by faith And there are people that want to live for the moment. What are we going to choose? The path that's easiest for us? Or the path that seems to be difficult, narrow, yet it leads to life? And that's what Jesus calls us to do. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Something we all have to think about, all have to consider. Maybe in this moment as I'm talking about these things, you've been thinking about the sins that you've committed. And you've been thinking about, like, maybe this is a night I can rededicate my life to Jesus. Maybe this is a time that I can finally turn away from those things that I've been doing, the ways I've been living. You don't have to just be having a drinking problem, smoking, or doing drugs in order to be forgiven of your sins. I'm saying that there are things that you know that you've done wrong and you need to be forgiven. Well, we're going to make it possible for you tonight. At any point in time, you can always call upon the Lord. But there's something about doing it in a public way, doing it before other people. Because when you do that, what you're saying is, I don't care what other people think. I do not care if people wonder, oh, what's his sin? What's he struggling with? We're all sinful people. We all have struggles. We all have difficulties. And oftentimes, we're missing out on the greatest tool to bring us to Jesus, which is conviction of sin. A lot of times we're telling people, uh, people like, oh, Jesus can give you a good life. Make you happy. It's like, first we got to tell them, like, listen, if Jesus did not die for your sins, there would be no hope, no possibility of repentance or forgiveness. So we're going to give you that opportunity tonight. Let's pray.